So welcome once again to our um, church service. We're glad that you have joined us. Um, we are busy in a series looking at the, the ethical system of Jesus, and we're looking at the, the core or foundational elements to this Christi uh, Christian ethical system as understood and explained by Jesus. And we were just taking our time, kind of resting in these two great commandments, loving God with all of our hearts. And we take, took about uh, almost three weeks to just slowly go through this. And now we've started with loving our neighbor. What does that look like? And last week we started to look at these concepts of what it means. And we started to define what love is. Because in the context that we live in, love is different than what the Bible necessarily thinks of love. To we, we, we love various things that it's actually more things that we like. Or sometimes love is connected more to lust than the actual biblical idea of love. And so what we did last week is we started to define what love is in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we saw that love is primarily, biblically, a verb, something that you do. It reminds me of a story of a little girl uh, that went to visit a friend of hers and they were eating dinner. And so the mom said, well, the vegetable tonight is uh, buttered broccoli. And the girl said, oh, wow. And her mother say, the mother said to the child, do you love buttered broccoli? And says, yes, ma'am, I love it. And then uh, as, the, as the, uh, the dinner went on, the lady uh, passed the buttered broccoli and she saw that the little girl didn't eat it. And she asked, but uh, don't you love buttered bro broccoli? You said you love it. Don't you want some? She said, no, no, um, I do love it, but not enough to eat it. Uh, and that's what I think that sometimes that's our concept when we think about love. We love to sing about it. We love to talk about it. We love to, to hear about it, but we don't always necessarily love to do it. And so when the Bible speaks to us in this idea of love, it is something that we do. That's how Jesus understood it. That's how Paul understood it. And I want to read you some, some verses that gives us this concept or this context of how Paul understood it. In Galatians chapter 2 verse, verse 20, um, and, and I'm only going to mention three of these verses, and each of them is outside of Corinthians, so that we can see that it's not only in Corinthians that Paul uh, defines love in this, these terms, but in other of his books as well. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, we see it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, love is something that gives up, something that, something that does something. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 to 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Once again, Jesus is the one that gives himself up. He demonstrates what love is, not by um, an emotion, not just by a beautiful talk or a beautiful sermon, but by actually showing us, by, by doing something. The last one that I want to mention is Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He showed his love. He showed what love is by demonstrating, by doing something. So Jesus' love is what defines love for the Christian. Jesus shows us that love is a settled purpose of acting in a way that is for the well-being of the others, regardless of whether they accept it or not. I want to read that again. Love is a settled purpose of acting in a way that is for the well-being of the other, regardless of how they respond, whether they accept it or not. 
So when we think of love as Christians, and when we think of these ethical systems that, that is bound up in the concept of love, we need to look at Jesus. He is the, the concept and, and the manifestation of love. So we see that love is definitely other-centered. It, it, it is something that is focused on the other. And we started to kind of speak about that last week in the first cluster of understanding what love is. That love is patient, meaning that it, it's a way that you react towards something. It's having a long fuse in sh- instead of a short temper. It, it minimizes a negative situation. But love is also kind. It is something that acts in a specific way, uh, a way of being uh, gentle and helpful and thoughtful and, 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 and thinking of all these things of how to maximize a blessing. But now we're going to move in a different way. And Paul shifts his, his thinking, and he starts to define love in the next cluster, what, what they would call violence the via negativa. It's a way of by negation. He explains what love is by telling us what love is not. And so we look at these four today, what love is not. He says that love is not jealous, love is not boastful, love is not arrogant, and love is not rude. So we'll go through all four of these uh, very quickly. The first one is that love is not jealous. The word here for jealous in the original language is uh, onomatopoeic, which means that it's a word that sounds like the word, the word sounds like something that it does. For instance, the word sizzle sounds like something that is sizzling on a pan, or the word boom or bomb, it sounds like something that is exploding. It's the same with this word. In the Greek, it sounded like something that it is connected with. So the word jealous in the Greek, zelu, is connected to this word of of burning or this idea of boiling water, something that is boiling or burning over. It gives this idea of of burning with intense desire or earnest uh, desire, something that has passionate zeal. They're earnestly striving towards something. And it can also mean something that is jealous. Now, Paul uses, interestingly enough, in the book of Corinthians, especially in the chapter um, 12, 13, and 14, he uses this way in both positive and negative ways. And I want to read it to you. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31, the ending of the, 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 the section they're moving into into 1 Corinthians 13, he says there that the Christians in Corinth should zulu the greater gifts. They must earnestly desire greater gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13, then he says there that love is not zulu. And then again in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, he uses the same word again in a positive way where he says that we should pursue love, yet zulu spiritual gifts. Desire earnestly spiritual gifts. At the end of the chapter, in chapter 14, once again, he uses the same word where he says, therefore, my brothers, zulu to prophesy, earnestly desire to prophesy. Now, this might seem a bit confusing to us. Whether What, what does Paul mean? Is the word positive or negative? Well, it's kind of a bit of both. And we don't know what the word means, whether it is a positive in a word, used in a positive way or in a negative way. By just looking at the word, we actually have to look at the context of how it is used. When the, the, the motivation behind the, the action is shown in the context, we know that it is either earnest desire, because that's a good thing, or jealousy, which is a negative thing. When Paul uses this in Corinthians 12 and chapter 14, he is saying that we should be desiring of spiritual gifts. The church in Corinth should desire spiritual gifts that can be a blessing for other people. But then he says, but you have used these spiritual gifts. You have used the desire for these good things for bad motivations. You want these spiritual gifts not to bless others, but to be uh, exalted by them. You want to be seen by them. And that's, that's where it becomes problematic. That's when it becomes an issue where they're just trying to bolster their egos. You see, jealousy is displeased when others are experiencing something that 
that, that they want. They, they're displeased when there's success that is not theirs, but somebody else's. But you see, the problem is not the success. The problem isn't the nice house. The problem isn't the promotion. The problem is the, is the person that is jealous is jealous because that other person has something that they think that they deserve. Think about it. If you're jealous about something, you are jealous because you're thinking, wait a second, I should have that. I deserve that, and that other person doesn't. So it comes down to a question of worth. Is that person really worthy to have what they have? You see, love sees worth in, an, in another. It wants the others to enjoy the good blessings of life. When you, when you want some others to, another to, to have something great, then you won't be jealous of them. Jealousy at its root is self-absorption. It's self-interest. It's self-love in action. Augustine puts it this way. He says, the reason why love does not envy is because it is, is not puffed up. For where puffing up precedes, envy follows. Because pride is the mother of envy. A simple question to ask yourself whether you are jealous. Ask yourself, the person that I think is beneath me, somebody that doesn't have the talents that I have or isn't as equipped as I am or doesn't have as many degrees as, as I do or they're not as, you know, as good as what I am. Am I happy when they get what I think that I deserve? If somebody comes and they're younger than you or somebody comes and they have less degrees than you, somebody that comes and, and gets that promotion that you've been working for, are you jealous or are you happy that they have received something good? You see, it comes down to worth. There, there is a, a picture that I want Jonna to put up the screen now, and you'll see it here from a, a Renaissance artist, Giotto, that painted envy or jealousy. He painted it, and it's something very interesting. If you see the picture on the screen now, you will see that he depicts envy with long ears so that they could hear every bit of news about the other person's success. But then he also gave envy the tongue of a serpent to poison the reputation of the one that is, uh, uh, that is being um, envied. But if you look at the painting very carefully, you will see that, that, that there is a tongue that coils back and stings the eyes of the figure itself. So not only did Giotto picture envy as being blind, but he also pictured it as something that is destroying itself with its venom. That's what envy does. Somebody once said about jealousy and envy, it says, if we shoot arrows of jealousy at others, we wound ourselves. If we resent the success and accomplishment of others, we find ourselves striking at them, but we are damaging ourselves. Jealousy is one of the sins that was hurting the church in Corinth. They were jealous of other people's gifts. They were jealous that they were people that were following somebody. That they, they, There was constantly this jealousy going around. And what is interesting is, is Paul speaks about this. And he, and he says um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, he instructs them to follow a more excellent way. He's, saying, he's using the same word. He's saying, desire something more. Use that, that energy and that, that boiling over, that energy that is there. Desire something good, not something bad. You see, the desire isn't bad. The, the, the boiling in us, the, the, the movements in us isn't bad. It's what the motivation that drives it that is. He's saying that love will desire the good of the other because love is always other-centered. Love will never be self-centered or self-absorbed. The next one is that love is not braggadocious. I decided to use the word braggadocious instead of brag or bragging because the word braggadocious just seems a bit more braggadocious, doesn't it? 
Another synonym that would work well is the word pompous. Pompous gives this idea of, of somebody that parades himself with a, with a royal wave, waving at the plebs in the cheap seats. That's the idea that I have of somebody that is a braggart or braggadocious pomp and pompous. In plain English, a braggart is a windbag that is just full of himself. Interestingly enough, bragging is the ugly twin sister of jealousy. And both, both of them stems from selfishness. Jealousy is wanting something that somebody else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. It's the flip side of the same coin. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. Bragging is an outward manifestation of pride. The braggart tries to impress others of their great accomplishments in order to make themselves look good. But you see, love doesn't need to prove itself to anybody. Love doesn't need to build itself up because love is trying to build others up. Paul is speaking directly to the church of Corinth when he says that because what they were doing constantly was trying to build themselves up so that they can be seen. But in a sense, that has been the problem through the church for generations and generations. Even today in our church, in the Christian church in 2020, maybe even in Kingslip, we see this alive and well. We people are braggadocious. We might use it differently. You see, people in the church of Corinth use spiritual gifts to show how good they are, to puff themselves up, to, to draw attention to themselves. But sometimes today, we use different spiritual gifts maybe to do the same thing. We use spiritual gifts that are connected to power and honor and status in our minds to puff ourselves up. Spiritual gifts like administration or, or preaching or singing. These gifts that are seen in front of the church. These are gifts that a lot of people want because they want to be seen in the church. Even the way that sometimes the way that we react or act towards people of power shows that we are constantly geared towards this idea of honor and status. We want to be cool by association. We want to seem that we have power by association. You can see it in the way that our church operates. Even though we explicitly say that the church operates and that the local church is the highest authority, somehow we still believe that the higher that you move in the organization, the more powerful, the more esteemed you are. We have this idea that when you're a pastor of a local church, you're just a pastor. But when you move up towards the conference, well, you have a bit more credibility, a bit more status, a bit more power and honor, and we treat them differently. And then when you move to the union, and you're a bit higher then, and then to the vision, a bit closer, but when you get to the general conference, well, then you've moved into holiness. We have this concept that certain people are treated differently the higher they move in the organization. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it operates. You see, those people in those positions, they are just functionally different. They do it on a different scale, but they are still just normal beings, normal human beings. We do it in the local church as well. Certain people will be, will be held up higher to esteem than other people. Some people will clamor and fight to be elders and, and head elders and, and deacons and all of these things. And other people, other people will stay away from that because they don't want to be involved in that and their egos are bruised. We see that the problem of Corinth is still alive and well in our church today. And Simon Kistemasa succinctly puts his finger on the problem, the heart of the issue. He says, a braggart is a person who parades his embellished rhetoric to gain recognition. He likes to tell people how good he is and how, how well he's done. His behavior is marked by egotism. 
subservience towards superiors. He, he looks towards those above him and, and, and says, if you say jump, how high must I jump? Listens and, and serves. But, but then he says, and condescending towards subordinates. Those that are beneath you, you treat as those that are beneath you. A braggart exhibits pride in himself in his accomplishment. But such bragging is devoid of the love of God and, and love to one, uh, to one fellow man. And then he puts it succinctly, and is a blatant sin. Have you ever thought about that? That being braggadocious or acting in this specific way, where you edify somebody up beyond what they are truly to be edified to, or pushing people down, you are actually doing something sinful. I would even go a step further to say that it is not only a blatant sin, but it is directly contradictory to the spirit of Christ. I want to show you two passages that I've mentioned before in this church, but it bears repeating again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 11. Paul speaking to this idea to the Philippian church that was obsessed with honor and power and moving up in the world. And he says this, um, in your relationship with one another, the way that you relate to each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, who had all the power and esteem, the person that could be braggadocious, the person that, that could be esteemed as high, the one that was at the top of the game, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and, give, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of the most beautiful passages to me because it shows so many, many nuances of who God is. Here, God is the, 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 the top dog. He is the alpha. There is nobody beyond him. And he decides, because he is a God of love, he decides to step down and show us what love is. And love is sacrificial. And so he steps down, steps down, steps down. And in, in this passage, it also shows us that, that the kingdom of heaven isn't devoid of honor. The kingdom of heaven isn't devoid of glory. But honor and glory is different in the kingdom of God. Honor and glory is not defined by the way the world defines honor and glory and success. Honor and glory is defined by the kingdom as how much you can serve, how much you can give, how other-centered you are. Because we see that Jesus was so other-centered, therefore he is highly exalted. Therefore he is put on the throne again. But then in the powerful ending of this, it says, and then he will do this. Jesus, everybody will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus comes and he is exalted, but he does it to the glory of the Father. Everything that Jesus does is to the glory of the Father. Everything that the Father is to, does is to the glory of the Son. Now we see the contrast to this, the spirit of the Antichrist in Isaiah chapter 14. We're starting in verse 12. It says, have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you ones who laid the nations low. And then it says to us, why? Why is he being cast down? You said in your heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the most high um, heights of the mount, Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Here we once again see that this, this braggart Lucifer wanted to go up and up and up. Everything was about him. He was so self-obsessed and self-absorbed. But it led to his downfall. 
We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse, verse 5 to 11, we see this idea that Jesus giving himself up, truly being loved, bringing people in, unifying people in his love, bringing them together. Dismantling uh, boundaries and, and things that divided people. But we see that Lucifer, as he moves up in the world, he breaks down unity. And this was, this was, what, was, was, this was what was happening in the church of Corinth. They were dividing the church by their braggadocious and jealousy. Superiority always brings separation. And it is a result of selfish love. C.S. Lewis actually calls this bragging the utmost evil. He writes it as the epitome of pride, the root of all sins. He actually says that bragging is the point where we put ourselves first. Everyone else, including God must therefore be of less important, to, less important to us. So in order for us to build ourselves up, we must tear others down. When we brag, we can only be up when others are down. As I've mentioned before, uh, jealousy is the flip side of bragging. Jealousy is wanting someone else, what somebody else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down, but bragging builds us up. The result of bragging is the notion of superiority with the nose in the air and thinking I'm better than others. It creates a us versus them. Those that are up here and those that are down there. The opposite of that is selfless love. Love that unites, love that brings together, a love that seeks to build up, not tear down. That kind of love is a motivation that, that brings unity. Not only unity, but success. Because when I am not so concerned about my well-being, but the well-being of others, I want others to succeed. I want others to do well. So ask yourself this question. Who are you trying to let succeed? Who are you helping to succeed? Is it your brother and your sister? Is it your wife and your husband, your children? Is it those that you might not like that much? Are you trying to let them succeed? Is your action showing that you are helping them to succeed? Love is not braggadocious. Love isn't the braggart, not full of himself. The third one is that love is not arrogant. I love the way that King, King James renders it. It says that love isn't puffed up. This is very close to the meaning actually in the original language because in the original, um, the word actually comes from this idea to breathe in, to blow in or to inflate with a pair of bellows. It means it's just, they're full of air. They're just full of air as they're being pumped up by themselves. Now love is the opposite of arrogance, Paul says. So when Paul says that love is not arrogant, he's saying that love um, does not cherish an inflated idea of its own importance. Richard Lenski, uh, speaking on this verse, speaking about this idea that, that love is not arrogant, links all of these together and comes to the heart of, of what really happens behind these actions. He says, behind boastful bragging, there lies conceit, pride, and overestimation of one's own importance, abilities, and achievements. The logical step in becoming puffed up by this kind of thinking, from envy to boasting, and from boasting to puffing oneself up is the natural sequence in the psychology of lovelessness. I'm going to read this again. From envy to boasting, envy or jealousy is the same word. From envy to boasting, from jealousy to braggadociousness, from envy to boasting, from boasting to puffing up arrogance um, oneself is the natural sequence in the psychology of lovelessness. He continues, he says, 
He that exalts himself shall be abased. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. That's exactly what Philippians chapter 2 said and what, uh, what uh, Isaiah chapter 14 said. We will become abased if we harbor the spirit of the Antichrist or will be exalted when we follow the spirit of Christ. And then he continues, he says, thus in the case, the positive virtue of Christian humility and loneliness of mind. He says that to have the, the Christian uh, humility, to have this lowliness of mind, that is a virtue within Christianity. In the world it might not be, but in, but in Christianity it is. That shows the paradoxical way that the kingdom is operating on. It shows that, that the kingdom doesn't view things the way that the world views things. That means that we, as human beings and as Christians, who are primarily informed by the world, need to think to ourselves, whoa, do we operate according to the principles of the world or to the principles of the kingdom? Do we follow what Christ really taught us or do we follow what we think the world says that with the way that we should go? Paul says that we should follow Jesus and Jesus says that he is not full of himself. He is not arrogant or rude. The next one is this idea that love is not rude. Love is not rude. Rudeness, once again, is the twin of arrogance. Just like jealousy is the twin of bragging. Arrogance is thinking too much of yourself. And rudeness is thinking not enough of somebody else. It disregards the other and only sees the self. It moves to a point where you disregard the imagio dei in the other, the image of God in the other. Every human being on this earth is created in the image of God. And when you look at them, you should see the image of God. And when you are rude to them, you disregard the image of God in them. It means that, that we should respect every individual, regardless of their nationality, of their gender, of their race, and even if they have bad music choices, it doesn't matter. We should love them and we should regard them and treat them well on the virtue of the fact that they are created in the image of God. A few years ago, actually many years ago, when I was about five or six years old, I decided to do something for my dad for, for Father's Day. Now, my mother used to go to the market to get vegetables, and she used to come back with this, with this wooden case where all the tomatoes would be in. And I decided one day to take this case and uh, take it apart and take the, the corner side of it. And, and I took some sanding paper and sanded it down and, uh, as good as I could, as good as a five-year-old could, five could, and sanded it down. And then I took a permanent marker, and I, and I drew a green car on there. Green because my dad loves green, and cars because he loves cars. And I drew a, a green car on there, and and I wrote there, Happy Father's Day. And I gave it to my dad. Very proud of myself that I had made him something. My mom didn't buy me something. Nobody helped me. I made this for myself. And I gave it to my dad on Father's Day to show him how much I love him. Now, today, if you had to go into my house or my parents' house in South Africa, if you had to fly all the way there and you had to stop in their house in Johannesburg, walk through the front door, turn to the right and walk down the passageway into their bedroom and turn, take another right into their dressing room and you walk in there and open his wardrobe and you look at the top where all of his personal stuff is, you look there, you will find that piece of wooden plank still there. There's no real value in that wooden plank. It's just a wooden plank. But my dad values that, not because there's value in the plank, but because he values the creator. How much do you value the creator? Because it will be displayed in the way that you value the creature. When Paul is saying that love is not rude, he says that we esteem others. We see them of people of value, people that mean something. How do you value people? Do you really see them as somebody 
with value, somebody that, you should, uh, that should have your respect on the virtue that they are created in the image of God. Have you ever thought to yourself why God says in the Ten Commandments that we should not worship carved images? It's not because they just came out of Egypt and they used to worship carved images there. That is a reason, but it's actually not the main reason. The main reason why we shouldn't worship carved images out of wood and stone is because God had already created an image of himself. We are the image of God. You are the image of God. And so when God created the image, uh, his image in human beings, he, he, he was working in a way that they would have understood it in ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, if you were a king, you would create an image of yourself and you would place it in this world, in, in the, your dominion, in your world where you, where you reigned, so that people would know this is your dominion. God creates humanity and makes them in his image so that this world will know that this is his domain. So the reason why God says do not bow down to carved images is because saying when you bow down to a, an image made of stone and of wood and all of all of these things, you are not only uh, uh, not worshiping the true God, but you're actually thinking less of yourself. That same, same idea applies when you are not valuing another person as a human being, you are disregarding the image of God. How you treat another person says not only what you think of them, but it says what you think of God. Paul says that love is not rude. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm already quite uncomfortable with what we've read in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know about you, but I've struggled with all of these things before. This is not something that I've struggled with. This was yesterday. This was today. This was, to, this, this was today. This was last week and last year. Like all of us struggle to be patient and kind. All of us struggle not to be jealous and, and boastful. Or, or we, we struggle not to be arrogant or, 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 or rude. Now, the way that we relate to this, to this idea uh, can either be that we are in denial. To say, well, that's not me. I, I am always patient and I'm always kind. And the problem is with everybody else. We can deny the problem and say, that, well, the problem isn't with me. This is a brilliant sermon for somebody else. So we can deny. Or we can fall into despair. Where we say, oh, I'm such a terrible human being. There's no hope for me. What can I do? Run away and, and, and never pray. Never come to church again. I'm such an utter, utter waste of space. I'm such a terrible human being. I, I don't love and I don't care and I'm not kind and I'm not patient. And I fall and I fall and I fall and I fall. Or we can dwell in God. And let God dwell in us you see the, what corinthians does what paul does in first corinthians 13 is that he holds up the mirror and says look at yourself look who you truly are look if you are loving and i think all of us can ashamedly say we are not as loving as we should be ashamedly we should say that yes we have failed in many respects but then we can say, but we also dwell in God and God is busy changing us. We can dwell in, in his saving grace, knowing that he justifies us of all the bad things that we've done before. If we confess our sins and come to him boldly, we know that he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we don't only dwell in his saving grace, we also dwell in his sanctifying grace, where God changes us. And as we dwell in his saving and sanctifying grace, as we behold him, the epitome of love, the manifestation of love, the one that loved us while we were yet sinners, when we look at him, as we behold him, we will be changed. We will be transformed and we will become more patient and kind. 
we will become less boastful and arrogant and jealous and rude. The more we dwell in him, the more he will dwell in us. As we continue this week, I have another challenge for you. I want you to continue with the challenge that I said that we must do last week. The challenge of trying to not say anything that is negative. Trying to bite your tongue. I must admit that this week I have failed a few times. But keep at it. Keep praying about these. Keep that journal. Because when we journal, we keep our minds active about these things. And then also continue the random act of kindness. One day, every day. Just do one small little thing for somebody. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be expensive. Just something small. Maybe a text message. Maybe just opening a door for somebody. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's helping somebody. Let the Spirit lead you. Pray that God would also lead you. But then also think about that, the, how you, you think about these concept, concepts of boastfulness and jealousy, of envy, of arrogance, of rudeness. And I want you to, to take 30 minutes in this next week. Go somewhere quiet, to a beach, to, to some place, to a solitary place, and sit down and ask yourself this question. Who am I jealous about and why? Why am I jealous of them? Why don't I want them to succeed? Ask yourself, what, why am I, what am I braggadocious about? What am I bragging about? What do I want people to see and why do I want people to see that? What, what is the problem? Do I have a problem with self-worth? And then I want you to, to, to write down and think about arrogance. Are you an arrogant person? Are you puffed up? And then rudeness. Think about the way that we relate to people. Think about the way that you speak about other people. The way that you relay certain information about other people. In churches, we don't gossip. We just share prayer requests, isn't it? But I want you to think about, uh, think about the way that we relate to those that are around us. Take some time and reflect on these things and pray about these things. Pray that God would reveal things to you and that God will help you the power to overcome these things and so that we as a community can be more loving. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness, Lord. Thank you that we cannot look to any person but to you, that, that no person on this earth loves perfectly, but you love perfectly. And if we behold you, Lord, if we dwell in you, we will become more loving. Lord, as we contemplate and think about these concepts this week, Lord, I pray that your spirit would reveal things to us, things that we might be blind to, things that we might not be able to see, things that we might have done or said that we might need to ask forgiveness for. I pray, Lord, that we would be truly the people of the book that we'd be truly the people of the king so that people would truly know that we are your disciples by the way that we love each other. The way that we love each other by the way that we are patient with each other and kind to each other, helpful and thoughtful and mindful, gentle. That people will know that we are loving towards other people, loving towards our community members, loving towards people that we don't like, even our enemies, by, by not bringing them down, by not, not, not tearing them down with our words, by, by not uh, being arrogant about our own goodness or perceived goodness, by not being rude or, or insensitive with our words. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be with us, that your spirit would lead us. These conversations are uncomfortable for all of us, Lord, because we all fail. 
but we know that when we are connected with you, when we dwell within you, Lord, we are working with one that knows no failure. And he who started her good work in us will see it to completion. That is our hope and that is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.